Hello and welcome back to What the Health. I'm Mary Agnes Carey, Partnerships Editor for KFF Health News, filling in this week for Julie Robner. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, November the 2nd at 10 a.m. Eastern. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. We are joined today via video conference by Joanne Kennan of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Politico. Hi, everybody. Jesse Hellman of CQ Roll Call. Hey there. And my KFF health news colleague, Rachana Pradhan. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. It's great to have all of you here. Um, Let's start today with the Affordable Care Act. If you're interested in enrolling in an ACA plan for coverage that begins January 1st, it's time for you to sign up. The ACA's open enrollment period began November the 1st and lasts through December 15th for plans offered on the federal exchange, but some state-based ACA exchanges have longer enrollment periods. Consumers can go online, call an 800 number, get help from an insurance broker or from other ACA navigators and others who are trained to help you research your coverage options help you find out if you qualify for a subsidy or if you should consider changing your ACA plan. What can consumers expect this year during open enrollment? Are there more or fewer choices? Are premiums increasing? So I saw the average premium will increase about 6%. So people are definitely going to want to shop around and may not necessarily just want to stick with the same plan that they had last year. And we're also going to continue seeing the enhanced premiums, subsidies that Congress passed last year that they kind of stuck with after the pandemic. So subsidies might be more affordable for people. I'm sorry, premiums might be more affordable for people. There's also some enhanced cost sharing assistance. So it kind of underscores the idea that if you're on the ACA exchange, you really should go back and take a look, right? Because there might be a different deal out there awaiting I I think the wrinkle, this may be what you were just about to ask, but the the wrinkle (laughs) this year is the Medicaid disenrolled, the unwinding. There are approximately 10 million, 10 million people who have been disenrolled from Medicaid. Many of them are eligible for Medicaid, and at some point, hopefully, they'll figure out how to get them back on. But some of those who are no longer eligible for Medicaid will probably be eligible for heavily subsidized ACA plans if they understand that and go look for it. This population has been hard to reach and hard to communicate with for a number of reasons, some caused by the health system, not the people, or the Medicaid system, the states. They do have a fallback. They have some extra options, but a lot of those people should click. (laughs) and see what they're eligible for. One thing kind of piggybacking on what Joanne said that I'm really interested in, of course, right now is a time when people can actively sign up for ACA plans. But the people who lost Medicaid or are losing Medicaid, technically, the state Medicaid agency, if they think that a person might qualify for an ACA plan, they're supposed to automatically transfer those people's applications to their marketplace whether it's healthcare.gov or a state-based exchange. But the data we have so far shows really low enrollment rates into ACA plans from those batches of people that are being automatically transferred. So I'm really curious about whether that's going to improve and what does enrollment look like in a few months to see if those rates actually increase. I'm also wondering what you're all picking up on the issue of the provider networks, how many doctors and hospitals and other providers are included in these plans. 
Are they likely to be smaller for 2024? Are they getting bigger? Is there a particular trend you can point to? I know that sometimes insurers might reduce the number of providers, narrow that network, for example, to lower costs. So I guess that remains to be seen here. I haven't seen data on the ACA plans, and maybe one of the other podcasters has. I haven't seen that. But we do know that in certain cities, including the one we all live in, um, many doctors are stopping, are, are no longer taking insurance. I mean, it's not most, but the, the number of out of, of people who are dropping being in network in some of the major networks that we are used to, I think we have all encountered that in our own lives and our friends' and families' lives. There are, there are doctors opting out. Or they're in, but their practices are closed. They're not taking more patients. They're full. I don't want to pretend I know how much worse it is or isn't in ACA plans, but we do know that this is a trend for multiple years and some parts of the country it's getting worse. Yeah, the Biden administration has been doing some stuff to try to address some of these problems. Last year, there were some rules requiring health plans have enough in-network providers that meet specific driving time and distance requirements. So they are trying to address this, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of these plans networks are still pretty narrow. Yeah, I mean, I think the concern for a while now with ACA plans is because insurance companies can't do the things that they did a decade ago to limit premium increases, et cetera. One of the ways they can keep their costs down is to curtail the number of available providers for someone who signs up for one of these plans. So like Jesse, I'm curious about how those new rules from last year will affect whether people see meaningful differences in the availability of in-network providers under specific plans. That and many other trends are worth watching as we head into the open enrollment season. But right now, I'd like to turn to another topic in the news, and that's abortion. What the health listeners know that last week... Your host, Julie Rofner, created a new segment that she's calling This Week in Healthcare Misinformation. Here's this week's entry. A measure before Ohio voters next Tuesday, that's November the 7th, would amend Ohio's constitution to guarantee the right to reproductive health care decisions, including abortion. Abortion rights opponents say the measure is crafted too broadly and should not be approved. The official government website of the Republican-controlled Ohio Senate is attacking the proposed abortion amendment in what some experts have said is a highly unusual and misleading manner. Headlines on the On the Record blog, and that's what it's called, On the Record. This is on the Ohio State website. It makes several claims about the measure that legal and medical experts have told the Associated Press were false or misleading. Headlines on this site include, and I'm quoting here, abortion is killing the black community, and that the proposal would cause, again, another quote, unimaginable atrocities. Isn't it unusual for an official government website to operate in this manner? I, I think yes, as far as we know. And that's really scary. Um, it's hard enough these days to sort out what is legitimate and what isn't. We've seen AI used in other political campaign materials in the forms of altered videos, photographs, etc. But now... This is a really terrifying prospect. I think that you could provide misinformation to voters, particularly in close races. I would say that you could really swing an outcome based on what people are being told. The other thing that's being said in Ohio by the Republicans is that the measure would allow, quote, partial birth abortions, which is a particular it's a phrase used to describe a particular type of late term abortion. That's illegal. Congress passed legislation I think it's 15 to 20 years ago now, and it went through the courts. It's been upheld by the courts. This measure in Ohio does not undo federal law in the state of Ohio or anywhere else. 
So that's not true. And that's that's another thing circulating. This discussion is very important. And to Rachna's point, how voters perceive this is very important because Ohio is serving as a testing ground for political messaging headed into the presidential race next year. And abortion groups are trying to qualify initiatives in more states in 2024, potentially including Arizona. So even if you haven't followed this story closely, I mean, how do you think this tactic may influence voters? Again, you're you're talking about something when you hit a news tab on an official state website, you come to this blog. Do you think voters will reject it? Could it possibly uh, influence them? As you were talking about earlier, tip the results. Well, I don't think we know how it's going to tip because I don't know how many people actually read the state legislature blog. Yeah, that could be an issue. Although, and, and, and you know, the co- coverage of it, one would hope in the state media would point out that some of these claims are untrue. But I mean, it's taking, the, you know, the Republicans have lost every single state ballot initiative on abortion and it's been a winning issue for for the Democrats. And they're trying to reframe it a little bit because while polls have shown, not just polls, but voting behavior has shown that many Americans want abortion to remain legal, they aren't as comfortable with late-term abortions, with abortions in the final weeks or months of pregnancy. So this is trying to sort of shift it from a general debate over banning abortion, which is not popular in the U.S., to an area where there's softer support for abortions later during a pregnancy. And polls have shown really strong support for abortion rights. But this is an area that is not as strong and uh, or a little bit more open to maybe moving people. And if the Republicans succeed in portraying this as falsely led allowing procedure that the, the country has decided to ban, I think that's part of what's going on is to shift shift the definitions, shift the terms of debate. As we know, Ohio is not the only state where abortion is taking center stage. For example, in Pennsylvania, abortion is a key issue in the state Supreme Court justice election, and it's a test case of political fallout from the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court's decision last summer to overrule Roe v. Wade. In Texas, the state is accusing Planned Parenthood of defrauding the Republican-led state's Medicaid health insurance program. And in Kansas, in a victory for abortion rights advocates, a judge put a new state law on medication abortions on hold and blocked other restrictions governing the use and distribution of these medications and imposed waiting periods. And of course, abortion remains a huge issue on Capitol Hill with House Republicans inserting language into many spending bills to restrict abortion access, to block funding for HIV prevention, contraception, global health programs, and so on. So which of these cases or others maybe that you are watching do you think will be the strongest indicators of how the abortion battle will shake out for the rest of this year and into 2024. I'm actually going to make a plug for another one uh, that we didn't mention, which is for our local uh, D.C. area listeners, Virginia next week has a state legislative election. So Governor Youngkin, of course, is still he's not up for for re-election. He'll sit one single four-year term, but the entire uh, Virginia General Assembly is up for election. So currently, Governor Yunkin says that he wants to institute a 15-week abortion ban, but Republicans would need to control uh, every branch of government, which they do not currently, but it is possible that they will after next week. So that would be a a big change as you see sort of uh, abortion restrictions that have proliferated, especially throughout the South and the Midwest. But now Virginia so far has not, in the wake of last year's Dobbs decision, has not imposed greater restrictions on access to abortion. But I think the 15-week limit also provides kind of a test case, I think, for whether 
Republicans might be able to coalesce around that standard as opposed to something more aggressive, like, say, a total ban or a six week ban that has uh, that's, you know, obviously been instituted in certain states, but I think at a national level right now is a non-starter. I'm pretty interested in, in seeing, you know, what happens even in a lot of our own backyard. Because Virginia is really tightly divided. I mean, the last few elections, this was a traditional Republican state that has become a purple state. And the last few state legislature elections, didn't they once like decide by like drawing lots? It was so close. I mean, it's it's flip back. It's it's really, really, really tiny margins in, in both houses. I think Rachna lives there and knows the details better than I do. But it's it's razor thin. And it, it was Republican controlled for a long time. And Democrats what have like one seat in the Senate control, something like that, a very narrow margin. And Joanne, they may or may memory, not keep it. Your memory's so good because they had to I edited draw, your stories. You did, I know. And <laughs> they had to draw names out of a bowl that was like, a, it was in a museum. It was something that a Virginia potter had made and they had to take it out of a museum exhibit. I mean, it was the most, it, it's really fascinating what democracy can look like in this country when it comes down to it. It was such a bizarre situation to decide control of of, <laughs> of uh, the state house. So you're very right. So it's very close. It's also worth pointing out, as we have in prior weeks, is that 15 weeks is now being offered as this sort of moderate position when 15 weeks a year ago, you know, that's what the Supreme Court case was really about. The case we know as Dobbs, it was about a law in Mississippi that was a 15 week ban. And what happened is once the courts gave the states the go ahead, they went way further than 15 weeks. I don't know how many states have a 15 week ban. Not many. The the anti-abortion states now have sort of six weeks ish or less. North Carolina has 12 with some conditions. So 15 weeks is now, you know, Youngkin's saying, here's the here's the middle ground. I mean, even when Congress was trying to do a ban, it was 20. So when they had those symbolic votes, I think it was always 20. He's changed the parameters of what we're talking about politically. Jesse, how do you see the abortion writers on these appropriations bills, particularly in the House, where a lot House Republicans have put a lot of this abortion language into the appropriations bills? How do you see that shaking out, resolving itself as we look forward? It is hard to see how some of these writers could become law, like the one in the FDA ag approps bill that would basically ban mailing of mifepristone, which can be used for abortions. Even some moderate Republicans who are really against that writer. I mean, just a handful, but it's enough where it would just be a non-starter. So I'm just not sure how I can see a compromise on that right now. And I definitely don't see how that could pass the Senate. So it's just everything has become so much more contentious since the Roe decision and things that weren't contentious before, like the PEPFAR reauthorization are now being bogged down in abortion politics. It's hard to see how the two sides can come to an agreement at this point. Yes, contentious issues are everywhere. So let's switch from abortion to AI. Earlier this week, President Biden issued an executive order that calls on several federal agencies, including the Department of Health and Human Services, to create regulations governing the use of AI, including in healthcare. What uses of AI now in healthcare or even future uses are causing the greatest concern and might be the greatest focus of this executive order? And I'm thinking of things that work well in AI or are accepted and things that maybe aren't accepted at this point or people are concerned about. 
I, I think that none of us on the panel are, are super AI experts. No, no, so, nor am I, nor uh, am but, I. But we are all following it and learning about it the way everybody else is. I think this is something that Vice President Harris pointed out in a summit in London on AI yesterday. There's a lot of focus on sort of the existential cosmic scary stuff, like is it going to kill us all? But there's also practical things right now, particularly in healthcare, like using algorithms to deny people care. And there's been some exposés of insurance doing batch denials based on an AI form. There's concerns about since AI is based on the data we have and the data, that's the foundation, that's the edifice. So the data we have is flawed. There's racial bias in the data we have so that, you know, how do you make sure the algorithms in the future don't bake in the inequities we already have? And there's questions, too, about AI is already being used clinically and, you know, how well does it really work? How reliable are the studies and the data? What what do we know or not know before we start? I mean, it has huge potential, you know, there, there are risks, but it also has huge potential. So how do we make sure that we don't have exaggerated, happy-go-lucky mistrust in technology before we actually understand what it can and cannot do and what kind of safeguards the government and the European governments as well, it's not just us, are going and they may do a better job, um, are going to be in place so that we have the good without, you know, tr the goal is sort of to be really simplistic about it is let's have the good without the bad. But doing it is challenging. Oh, Rachana, please. Well, all I was going to say was nowadays you cannot go to a healthcare conference or a panel discussion without there being some session about AI. I guess it demonstrates the level of, of interest. It kind of reminds me of every few years there's like a new healthcare unicorn. So it, there was ACOs for a long time, you know, that's all people would talk about or value-based care, like every conference you went to. And then with COVID and for other reasons, everyone is really big on equity, equity, equity for a long time. And now it's like AI is everywhere. So like Joanne said, I mean, we have everything from a, a chat bot that pops up on your screen to answer even benign questions about insurance. That's AI. It's a form of AI. Um, it's not generative AI, but it is. And um yeah, I mean, insurance companies use all sorts of algorithms and data to make decisions about what, what claims they're going to pay and not pay. So, yeah, I think we all just have to exercise some skepticism when we're trying to examine how this might be used for good or bad. I just want a robot to clean my kitchen. That's, you know, why doesn't anyone just handle the Silicon Valley does the really important stuff? You know? <laughs> that would be a use for good in your house, yeah, in my yeah. house, in all our houses. Yeah. So while we're understandably and admittedly not AI experts. We are experts on Congress here. And the president did say in his announcement earlier this week that Congress still needs to act on this issue. Why haven't they done it yet? They've had all these hearings and all this conversation about crafting rules around privacy, online safety, and emerging technologies. Why no action so far and any bets on whether it may or may not happen in the near future? I think they don't know what to do. We've only, like, as a country started really talking about AI at kitchen tables, to use a cliche, this year. And so Congress is always behind the eight ball on these issues. And even if they are having these member meetings and talking about it, I think it could take a long time for them to actually pass any meaningful legislation that isn't just directing an agency to do a study or directing an agency to issue regulations or something that could have a really big impact. Excellent. Thank you. So let's touch briefly before we wrap. I really do want to get to this point and some of the stuff continue to see in the news about healthcare workers under fire. It's certainly not easy to be a healthcare worker these days. New findings published by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show that in 2022, 
13.4% of health workers said they had been harassed at work. That's up from 6.4% in 2018. That's more than double the rate of workplace harassment compared to pre-pandemic times, the CDC found. We've talked about this before. It's worth revisiting again. What is going on with our healthcare workforce? And what do these kind of findings mean for keeping talented people in the workforce, attracting new people to join? Has anyone actually caught a break after the pandemic? I mean, good point. COVID is still out there, but I don't think that our healthcare system has really recovered from that. People have left the workforce because they're burnt out. People still feel burnt out who stuck around. And I don't know if they really got any breaks or the support that they needed. There's just kind of like this recognition of people being burnt out, but I don't know how much action there is to address the issue. I feel like sometimes that leads to more burnout when you see executives and leaders acknowledging the problem, but then not really doing much to address it. Well, that's certainly been the complaint by pharmacy staff and others and pharmacists at some of the large drugstore chains, retail chains that have gone out strike. They've had these two and three day strikes recently. So I'm assuming that will continue, unfortunately, for all the reasons that Jesse just laid out. Actually, kind of going back to the strikes from um, pharmacists, I was thinking about this uh, earlier because we've seen recently, I think separately in the news when it comes to labor unions, and maybe this will have some bearing, maybe not. But, you know, the United Auto Workers strike, I mean, they extracted some of the largest concessions from automakers as far as pay increases. And people are seeing, I think, decades. They really got a victory after striking for weeks. And I think people, at least the coverage that I've seen, has talked about how that union win might not just catalyze greater labor union involvement, not just in the auto industry, but in other parts of the country and other sectors. And so I'm not sure what percentage of pharmacists are part of labor unions, but I think people have sort of said more recently that like organized labor is having a moment or has been that it has not in a while. And so I'll be fascinated to see whether there's a greater appetite among pharmacists to actually be part of a labor union and sort of whether that results in greater demands of some of these corporate chains. As we know, we can talk about this, I think, in a little bit, but the corporate chains have really taken over pharmacies in America and rural pharmacies are really dying off. And so that has a lot of important implications for the country. I think the problems with the healthcare workforce are not all things that labor unions can address because some of it is, you know, how many hours you work and what kind of shifts you have and how often they change and things. But yeah, I mean, labor is having a moment, Roger's right. But, but they're also tied to larger demographic trends with an aging society. It's tied to our whole system is geared toward, you know, like like the dean of nursing at Hopkins, Sarah Santon, is always talking about, you know, it's not so much not having enough nurses, but we, we got them in the wrong places. You know, if we did more preventive care and community care and chronic disease management in the community, you wouldn't have so many people in the hospital in the first place where the workforce crisis is. So, you know, some of these larger issues of how do we have a better healthcare system, you know, labor negotiations can address aspects of it. You know, nursing ratios are controversial, but that's a, that's a labor issue. It's a regulatory issue as well. But our whole system's so screwed up now that Jesse's right. Nobody recovered from the strange the pandemic in many sectors, all probably all sectors of society, but obviously particularly brutal on the healthcare workforce. We didn't get to hit pause and say, okay, nobody gets sick for six months while we all recover. The unmet psychiatric needs. I mean, it's just tons of stuff is wrong and it's manifesting itself in the workforce crisis. So maybe it'll, you know, if you don't have anyone to take care of you, maybe people will pay attention to the larger underlying 
reasons for that. That's an issue I'm sure we will talk more about in the future because it's just not going anywhere. But for now, we're going to turn to our extra credit segment. That's when we each recommend a story we read this week and think you should read too. As always, don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links on the podcast page at kffhealthnews.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Joanne, why don't you go first this week? Well, speaking of which, uh, after we just talked about, there's a piece in the Washington Post by Mark Fisher. It has a long headline, Older Americans are dominating like never before, but what comes next? And um, basically, it's talking about the not so much the nursing and physician workforce, although that's part of it, just the workforce in general. We have more people working longer. And in areas where there's shortages, there's nothing wrong with having old people. Like there's short, a lot of communities have shortages of, of school bus drivers. So if you have a lot of older school bus drivers and they're safe and like kids and like driving the bus, you know, more power to them. If you're 55 and you can drive a school bus full of nine-year-olds or middle schoolers, you know, so much more. You know? <laughs> but, the, you know, some of the physician specialties, one of the people in the story is a, a palliative care physician who retired and got isn't happy retired and wants to go back to work. And that's another area where we need more people. But it's a cultural shift. Like, like who's doing what when and how does it affect the younger generation? Although there was a reference to Angela Jolie being on the old side at 48. I guess for an actress that might be old, but I, that wasn't the gist of it. But but we have this shift toward older people in many places, not just Trump and Biden. You know, it's sort of the whole workforce. Got it. Jesse. My extra credit is also a story from the Washington Post. It's called Drugstore Closures Are Leaving Millions Without Easy Access to a Pharmacy. Focus specifically on some of like the big national chains like CVS and Walgreens and Rite Aid, which have really kind of dominated the drugstore space over the past few decades. But now they are dealing with the repercussions from all these lawsuits that are being filed, alleging they had a role in the opioid epidemic. And the story just kind of looks at the consequences of that. These aren't just places people get prescriptions. They rely on them for food, for medical advice, especially in rural and underserved areas. And so, yeah, I just thought it was a really interesting look at that issue. Rachna? So my extra credit is a story in the New York Times called How a Lucrative Surgery Took Off Online and Disfigured Patients. It's horrifying. It's a story about surgeons who are performing a complex type of hernia surgery and evidently are learning their techniques, uh, or at least a, a large share of them are learning their techniques by watching videos on social media. And the techniques that are demonstrated there are not exactly high quality. So the story digs into resulting harm to patients. And it's unnecessary surgery in the first place for many, not all, but it's it's a more complicated procedure than they even need in, in, in a large portion of these patients. My extra credit is written by Rachel Kors of STAT, and she's a frequent guest on this program. Her story is called The Healthcare Issue Democrats Can't Solve Hospital Reform. While Democrats have seized on lowering healthcare costs as a politically winning issue, They've taken on insurers and the drug industry, for example. Rachel writes that hospitals may be a healthcare giant they're unable to confront alone, and they being the Democrats. As we know, hospitals are major employers in many congressional districts. There's been a lot of consolidation in the industry in recent years, and hospital industry lobbyists have worked hard to preserve the image that they are the good guys in the healthcare industry, Rachel writes, while others, like pharma, are not. Well, that's our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, 
you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps others find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our engineer, Francis Ying. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth@kff.org, or you can still find me on X. I'm at Mary Agnes Carey. Rachana? I'm at Rachana D. Pradhan on X. Uh, Jesse? At Jesse Hellman. And Joanne? I'm occasionally on X at Joanne Kennan, and I'm trying to get more on threads at Joanne Kennan 1. We'll be back in your feed next week. And until then, be healthy. <laughs>